Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. We're back after a short break and prepared to take a more optimistic tone when it comes to the pandemic. This week, we're going to discuss issues that have to do with either bringing the pandemic to an end or that will become relevant once it is actually over. First is the emergency use authorization of multiple drugs and vaccines. EUAs by design are not intended to be in place for the duration of the public emergency. And since we hope and frankly expect that one day the coronavirus pandemic will be snuffed out, we wondered whether the the FDA has plans that have received EUAs. CDRH is in fact writing a transition plan for the hundreds of diagnostics and other devices that have received EUAs in order to encourage them to pursue full approval. CEDAR, on the other hand, is still evaluating its approach to the issue. And CBER has said that convalescent plasma, which is currently under an EUA, must be approved through a BLA filing, and that any vaccines that receive an EUA are expected to continue continue working toward full approval. Now, the interesting part of this is that the FDA can keep the emergency, quote, declared, unquote, well after the pandemic is over to keep the This is something that's already been done with Zika, for example. Does anyone remember that crisis? So, Matt and Sarah, what do you think of the idea of keeping the coronavirus emergency ongoing? I mean, I think that unfortunately, probably it's going to be ongoing for at least a little while now, deservedly so. Um, But, (laughs) um, you know, like we're not going to get to the point where they could say, you know, we're sort of in the, we're out of this pandemic situation, I would guess for probably a maybe even another year, um, potentially, if you think about like the best case scenario for vaccination timing and so forth. But I guess it seems like it could be problematic if they just sort of leave these products under EUAs forever, um, but leave them out there. If we never get sort of the trial data you really want for full approval, right? Like, um, I mean, some of the product, like the um, com- convalescent plasma EUA was granted really without any clinical trial data on an expanded access program. And um, if even with a vaccine, if we assume that doctors and patients are going to be dealing with some level of COVID, perhaps in- endemically, um, you know, doctors want to be able to make the best decisions for patients so they're going to want to have some better sense of, you know, should we use the antibody drug? Should we use plasma? Should we use rendesivir, dexamethasone, or whatever else may come down the line? And I think they're going to want to have the data you get from a full approval. Yeah, that's the that's the the dilemma for uh, um, for these products, as uh, uh, you've written and you know done a, a bunch of other stories, uh, Sarah. That's sort of kind of once uh, once something's out there, it becomes harder to sort of kind of complete the trials that you need to sort of convert it to a full. Uh, a full approval because who wants to take the placebo once they feel like there's a uh, a viable treatment that's a uh, um, you know an accessible option. So uh, it is a challenge for all these products, and probably particularly more so for products that get de- developed later in the uh, um, emergency because they'll sort of have uh, less of a uh, of a window sort of kind of within that uh, um, you know sort of kind of EUA uh, um, viability to sort of kind of complete their uh, complete their studies. So we uh, we could be facing this challenge of, uh, um, you know, things just are kind of running out of uh, of runway to uh, to actually get uh, full approval. But 
um, you know, hopefully if the, uh, a lot of these uh, vaccine studies go well, you know, maybe there are uh, surrogate, you know, uh, markers, you know, correlates of protection. Uh, you could look at uh, antibodies or something, uh, something like that. That's sort of kind of that uh, would mean there would be faster trials available to uh, subsequent filers that sort of could, uh, they could sort of skip the EUA process entirely if there was able to, uh, um, to establish those, uh, um, those shortcuts uh, um, through uh, through clinical experience. So uh, um, this all is not uh, gloom and doom for these products, but it is a uh, very complicated situation as we keep these studies going. Uh, you know, in the midst of uh, um, people wanting access to uh, medications that could save their lives or uh, you know prevent infection. Yeah, it, 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 this is a, it's an interesting problem to have. You know, but it, it, I had a couple of, uh, well, at least one expert tell me that. You know, even when we're fully vaccinated, which, you know, like Sarah said, is a while from now, you're you're still not going to want to lift the emergency because COVID theoretically is still probably going to pop up somewhere. So, you know, you're, you don't want stuff like a drug. I mean, I'm not implying that remdesivir will just magically just disappear if if it's a UA expires. But, you know. You don't want stuff that's not approved for anything else to all of a sudden kind of be forced to revert back to the IND stage, which is what happens when an EUA expires. So, you know, you're kind of stuck in this kind of it, it's a it's a weird kind of limbo situation where just to avoid that, you just, you know, legally keep the, you know, the 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 definition of the emergency ongoing just so to encourage the sponsors to kind of keep going and, you know, at least work towards, you know, gathering as much data as they can before, you know, before it, you know, we, it's, everything is completely kind of squashed. The, the pandemic itself is completely squashed. Yeah, the extended emergency designation also uh, will probably have uh, liability benefits for, uh, um, for sponsors. So they would want to see that uh, continuing. And, uh, you know, even if it, uh, um, it doesn't mean that there can't be actual, uh, uh, therapeutic approvals. You know, you talked about uh, um, uh, you know Zika and uh, um, Ebola, and uh, you know there was a uh, um, an Ebola um, uh, product just approved uh, um, just this week. So uh, um, you know, it, it does even if there's sort of kind of uh, um, means that uh, um, you know things might move slower, it doesn't mean sort of things grind to a halt. So uh, hopefully, it doesn't sort of kind of uh, completely derail any efforts if there is sort of kind of an, an end to that. Uh, um, designation, but uh, um, the longer it goes on, the better for uh, for sponsors. And then also the other the other thing with this is they have to give ample notice before terminating anything. So you, that's just going to add another several you know months or however long they decide, you know, to before they actually say that, OK, they the EUAs are gone. And by that point, they might be fully approved and there won't even we'll go back to having no EUA drugs again, just like we we were before this whole thing started. But yeah, but as, as you've both been saying, that's probably going to take a while, even uh, when everyone's fully inoculated, depending on how uh, efficacious the vaccine is, it could take a while to actually sort of kind of uh, completely eliminate uh, outbreaks. So. Yeah, exactly. Our next story involves post-pandemic regulation at the FDA. Commissioner Stephen Hahn said this week that he wants the rolling review concept that has been employed for COVID-19 treatments and vaccines to remain available after the pandemic is over. 
Rolling review is a well-known expedited pathway, but we think he was talking about the real-time review that has allowed assess assessors to see data as it becomes available rather than wait for the entire application to be submitted. The move is expected to provide a head start and potentially speed up assessments of vaccines in particular. So Sarah and Matt, we've already seen speedier guidance development as one of the potential pandemic-inspired improvements. Do you think this will be one of the lessons that the agency retains as we go forward here? I think you were pointing this out earlier this week, Derek. It seems like something that might be attractive, certainly to sponsors and even potentially to FDA and to some degree. But the question is, like, do they actually have the capacity um, staffing wise and so forth to really do this or what resources would they need to make this a reality? And that se seems like a that's really a hurdle um, for them because this could be quite um resource intensive. The other thing you point out in your story, you know, Han gave a very sort of loose definition of what kinds of therapies might be considered for this type of review process. And, um, you know, you can certainly see it would probably take a lot of, you know, fighting and kind of back and forth with FDA companies um, and so forth for them to kind of even figure out how to, if they can't do this for every um, product, you know, which ones get this priority? Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Sarah. It's the uh, um, issue of the uh, the resource uh, 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 intensiveness uh, of it, and uh, um, you know, it it, uh, um, it really depends on uh, um, whether, uh, frankly, sort of sponsors feel that it's uh, worth carving out another sort of. Uh, category that uh, you know could be subject to user fees uh, so uh, um, you know we've got the uh, um, uh, got the regular user fees and uh, um, you know they certainly don't want to uh, create a situation where you you pay for an even faster track I think that would sort of be uh, be looked uh, askance upon by uh, um, by uh, by many stakeholders but uh, um, you know to the extent that sort of FDA can bring some data to the table showing that uh, you know if you uh, Increased uh, fees by actually could put sort of wide number of products sort of uh, through this quick pace. Then uh, um, you know I think you can actually see some progress on that. Yeah, it's a, you know it it's again is an interesting it's an interesting problem because you know and we and we've talked about this uh, on this podcast before. I think if if you prioritize everything, then nothing's prioritized. So. What are you going to do with the, you know, the what happens to the standard review, which is 12 months, if you're priority giving everything, you know, more more and more products, you know, priority review, and in some cases this, you know, real time data review. I mean, do you, you know, does standard review come become like a, you know, you know, a, a negative thing if you <laughs> tell investors that? You know, I, I, I don't know, but yeah. Right. It, Expect the stocks to drop when they say they've been accepted for filing, and there's no sort kind of uh, you know special designation involved. That's sort of yeah, exactly an accomplishment, but a disappointment. Yeah, that's a, yeah, and 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 if you listen to some of the some of the FDA officials talking about the effect of the pandemic on their staffs, I don't know if they could how how many of these they could actually do in you know regular time. I mean, Peter Marks talked about how. The agency is not quite going 24 hours a day still, but it's pretty close. So where he said like he's on from like 4 a.m. to like 
8 p.m. or something. And then there's like a late shift that go, starts at 4 p.m. and goes into the night. I mean, I, I, oh I don't want to, yeah, I, I don't want to know how hard these people are working just to get us out of the pandemic. And, you know, yeah, then you're going to tell yeah. them, oh, yeah, let's keep this going. This is such a wonderful idea. <laughs> and you have to remember, put that on top of what we sort of already know about FDA staffing, hiring, retention issues. Um, the qualifications of these people and the amount of money or opportunities they have in the private sector. Uh, so, you know, burning out um, FDA staff might not actually be the best solution for a, a long run policy for sponsors either, right? If you want to um, keep FDA, you know, an attractive place to work um, and so forth. When you've even seen industry in some cases not want more priority reviews, I mean, you, you know, the on the generic side, they talked about, you know, all the, because their first cycle approval rate wasn't going up fast enough that a priority review was just a faster way to a complete response letter. Hmm. So yeah, they would. So they were saying like we should stop priority doing priority reviews of andas and start doing priority reviews of like supplements and some other things that we know can get done quick. Yeah, it all uh, um, depends on, uh, you know, do companies think they can move fast enough to sort of get their manufacturing up and running, uh, you know, in that uh, lead time that uh, um, uh, FDA has for a while it's under review and uh, those sorts of questions. So it's, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge for uh, both FDA and the manufacturers. I had always thought that sort of one of the, uh, uh, you know, the COVID era um, uh, changes that might uh, stick would be sort of kind of these uh, um, shifts in sort of kind of how clinical trials are conducted, sort of the, the, the remote monitoring, the uh, decentralized trials, all those uh, sorts of things. There obviously is this tension between sort of kind of, uh, you know, um, letting companies sort of be more diffuse in how they uh, collect the data and this, you know, this growing feeling sort of we've heard, we've heard Janet Woodcock, we've heard uh, Scott Gottlieb, uh, he's not at the agency anymore, but obviously very influential still, talk about sort of how there should be sort of kind of maybe sort of more, you know, centralized design of the trials, you know, sort of more platform trials, more centers for kind of really sort of, you know, gathering meaningful data with all this effort, but sort of kind of doing it in a way that sort of gets at more patients. And, um, you know, it was interesting to see, see uh, um, uh, Commissioner Hahn sort of not too much talk about that, but sort of talk about these sort of kind of these, uh, um, these more sort of kind of sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, streamlining process uh, um, uh, efforts as opposed to the more sure, transformative approach to the, to the way that uh, research is conducted. Well, he's he kind of left that to his other to a lot of the other officials at FDA that were at this um, the Reagan Udall meeting where he was talking about this. Uh, Amy Abernethy has talked about uh, wanting to use remote monitoring and some of these other concepts that they've been able to figure out um, in the pandemic to kind of to open up trials for rare disease patients in particular and and uh, you know some other diseases just just to make them more accessible because it's so hard to find patients and now with travel issues you can't you can't regularly take people back and forth to to these big uh, you know academic hospitals to see experts and so forth so finally today we're going to look ahead at what is potentially one of the biggest events of the last several years for us FDA wonks. 
the October 22nd Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting is coming up in a few days. The committee is going to discuss development and approval standards for coronavirus vaccines and is expected to draw a lot of interest since the entire world is waiting, awaiting the end of the phase three trials for several of these candidates. Sarah and Matt, is there anything that you're most interested to see at this meeting? I, one of the things I'm interested to see is sort of what kind of advice can FDA get from the committee at this point that can sort of be actionable by the sponsors at the stage we're at, right? Like it just seems like a, it's a strange time to have an advisory committee to me because we know we're not gonna we're not expecting to see products specific products discussed, but yet most of the products we're focusing on are, are already in phase three or pretty close to being in phase three. So stuff is already designed. FDA has already issued their guidances. Um, there's certainly some things I think um, FDA could get important advice from on like you know what happens like what we were just talking about in terms of you know, making sure they go from getting an EUA to a full approval and how that might work and what kind of date, longer term data they would want. But um, there's like a lot of excitement around this meeting, but I'm not sure what the key like, you know, usually you kind of wait to the end of the advisory committee and there's some kind of key votes or things. And I'm just not sure what that's going to be here, but I think it will be very interesting. Like I can imagine a lot of these committee members have some pretty um, vocal thoughts on what FDA has done so far. I'm just not sure what ability they have to like move the needle at this point. Yeah, if FDA is sort of hoping that this, this sort of kind of openness and uh, uh, outside vetting will sort of, will, you know, help reassure people about the uh, scientific process and the, uh, the validity of the data that's going to go behind a uh, vaccine it'll be uh, interesting to see if they come in come on for come in for a lot of criticism from their uh, outside advisors and I don't know what that might mean uh, uh, for uh, um, for the public opinion of uh, of the whole uh, process so that'll be very interesting to, to, to see sort of kind of what uh, um, what the agency's reputation uh, um, is uh, is impacted by through this uh, through this advisory committee yeah I'm I'm guessing the FDA is probably secretly hoping that the committee doesn't say that like a 50% efficacy rate or two months of safety follow-up is totally unacceptable, you know, in their minds, you know, because it, you're not changing that now, I don't think. Right, right. right. It seems like it would, for some of the sponsors for the salon, that would be pretty hard um, pivot for, for them to make, which is what makes, again, the timing of this all the more interesting and maybe perhaps this was scheduled with the hope that somebody a product would be available to evaluate now um it's hard to know what the in initial intentions were i think another thing that's just going to be interesting is how much attention is paid to this meeting by kind of the general public and audiences that don't normally pay attention to advisory committees and what is the ramifications of that in terms of people's understanding of the agency and the vaccines that they may soon have available to them. Do we get it on TV? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that my, yeah, that that's one of my, one of my little pet 
pet issues has been to televise, get this meeting televised and get the product specific meetings televised when they when they uh, when they eventually come up. But yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how the technology holds up. I mean, this is the ultimate test for FDA's ability to conduct virtual meetings. They've been doing this for several months now, but nothing on the scale like people are expect they're expecting here. I think I think we heard this morning it was what 50,000 potential seats are now available online for this. I mean, is that going to be enough? Are there going to be millions of people that want to try and watch this meeting or millions of researchers around the world? I mean, who knows? But um, yeah, I, I'm curious if they, I'm curious to see how well that the platform holds up myself. I guess well, another thing. Sorry, go ahead, Sarah. Another thing we've been watching is, you know, who's actually going to be on this committee. Um, we obviously sort of know the standard roster, um, but there have already been a few people that have had to back out because of their roles in some of these vaccine trials. Um, who will they add on to the committee, perhaps as like a special um, addition, and why are they adding the people they're adding? What kind of expertise do they think they need? Um, so there'll be a lot of like inside baseball, super inside baseball things for us to watch and that may also give us a better sense of like who's also going to then be the people actually on the committee to review particular applications. Yeah, even what's FDA going to have them talk about? I mean, we still, I mean, we kind of know a little bit about what they're going to ask about, you know, and, and we have some, we have some educated guesses too. I mean, you know, there's, you know, like pulse marketing issues. How do you handle children and pregnant women, which aren't in any of the trials yet? You know, I mean, issues like that that are probably going to come up, but you know, the, the whole, just the, the agenda of the meeting is, is kind of, an, is going to be an interesting thing to look forward to. How many well, public what? comments will there be? <laughs> How long will that take? <laughs> they, uh, they apparently only have an hour, so uh, we'll have to, uh, to see who, uh, who made the cut in terms of uh, being able to uh, present. And, and what are they going to, what are they going to talk about in the public during the public you know, uh, the public comment section, because are, are you going to say, I don't care what it is, don't approve it? Or are they going to say, you know, I don't care what it is, you better approve something? Or are you going to, you know, I'm curious what, I'm curious what all the, all the people that signed up want to talk about. Do they argue I, about distribution? I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of um, comments about the president, you know, what the president has said about vaccines and a lot of I think a lot of the conversation from commenters may you know deal with sort of the independence of the FDA the standards um, people want to see before approval because um, I mean there's certainly been no shortage of kind of public debate around what we need to see from these vaccines and the concern of how FDA could get you know sort of politically um, pushed one way or the other. So I'm guessing that's going to be a hot topic. Yeah, it would be uh, disappointing if it was all sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, um, statisticians who didn't make the cut for the uh, the committee to sort of kind of spend the spend that public comment hours or sort of kind of uh, talking about, uh, you know, various different uh, analytical techniques. Uh, you know, we all uh, uh, appreciate the red meat of sort of kind of those, uh, those policy questions. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully they won't disappoint. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have a Bayesian statistics discussion during this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it, 
big meeting coming up, at least for for us. Expect a lot of coverage in the pink sheet of it. So something to so something to look forward to. I know we're excited. You guys should be. Everyone listening should be excited too. So uh, just uh, you know something to look forward to. So that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Pharma Intelligence Podcasts. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Gingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.